The story begins. A mother bird sat on her egg. The egg jumped. I must get something for my baby bird to eat, she said. So away she went. Inside the nest, the egg jumped. and jumped and jumped until out came a baby bird. Where is my mother, he said. He did not see her anywhere. I'll go and look for her, he said. Out of the nest he went. Down, 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 plop. The baby bird could not fly, but he could walk. Now I will go and find my mother, he said. So the rest of the story goes... He goes in search of his mother, and uh, not knowing what he is, he turns to all sorts of other things and asks the question, first a kitten, and then a dog, and a, a hen, and a cow, are you my mother? And finding none of these to be his mother, he asks the question, do I have a mother? But certain that he has a mother, he keeps going and keeps in, in search, and he mistakes a car and, uh, and uh, a boat and an airplane and finally a backhoe for being his mother. Now, the backhoe lifts him up and puts him back in the nest, and the mother bird returns and says, do you know who I am? And the baby bird says, you are my mother. Now, I know that this book is probably a little bit too simplistic for many of our reading tastes, but it makes a profound point. And that is when it comes to our identity, when it comes to knowing who and what we are, we have to find that answer outside of ourselves. The baby bird could not know what he was without an other to turn to. We are dependent upon an other to find out who and what we are. And that's why Genesis begins like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That human beings, unlike any other created thing, needed to, to look to God to find out who and what they were because they were made in his image. That's where we find our identity. Now, just like the baby bird fell out of the tree, Genesis 3 was our fault. And our first parents disobeyed God. And sin and death entered into our reality. Now, along with that came shame. Uh, it says that their, their eyes were opened, they looked down at themselves, and they saw that they were naked and they felt shame. They were naked before, but now they feel shame. That somehow, through disobeying God, through, through sin entering their new reality, their perception has been changed and altered, and they see things through this filter of shame. And just like in the story, the baby bird goes and, and questions anything and everything that they can ask, who am I? We too have turned to anything and everything looking to answer the question, who and what am I? Looking to define us, looking to, to inform us about where our identity is. And this quest has led to so much brokenness in our lives. Among that brokenness are issues surrounding emotional and mental health. This morning, we're beginning a, a series on emotional and mental health that's tied to our Advent series. And so uh, you'll, you'll see um, for this week, the, the theme is our hope in anxiety. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, right? He's our hope in anxiety. Next week, we'll look at our peace in uh, depression. The following week, our, our joy in trauma. Uh, the fourth week is, uh, is Christmas Eve. We won't address a mental or emotional health uh, that day. It's going to be a simple family gathering where we'll focus in on love. But for the next three weeks, we're, we're, we're going to address 
these struggles that we have. And, and I want to make it clear that just because I'm, we're, we're titling it hope and anxiety doesn't mean that there's not hope in depression or hope through trauma. Um, just because uh, it says peace in depression doesn't mean there's not peace in anxiety or, 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 or joy in, in depression, all right? Uh, these are all sort of interchangeable ideas, but for the sake of entitling the message, this is what it is. Now, a good question might be, why would we do this? Why would we tackle these issues during the holidays? Why now? I mean, isn't it at Christmas time, isn't this devoted to just, you know, looking at the gospel narratives that Matthew and Luke and see the historical account of Jesus' birth, right, to be reminded of the historical fact of that. Why, why dive into these particular issues and this, this, this deep, deep stuff at uh, Christmas time? And the truth is, it's because we need to. Uh, the truth is, is that so many of our struggles uh, come to the surface during this time of the year. They're exacerbated during this time of the year. Um, it, it's a season for, for some of us of, of, uh, of contradiction where we feel like I know I'm supposed to be filled with hope. Why do I feel anxiety? Like I know I'm supposed to be filled with peace. Why am I struggling with depression? I know that I'm, I, I'm supposed to be filled with joy. Why, why is past trauma weighing so heavily on me? It's a season of contradiction, and these things are brought to the, to the surface, and I think that it is, it is appropriate to, to address them. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. That's not just a historical fact. That's a theological reality that changes everything for us. It changes everything. Now, hopefully I'll make this clear as, as, as this being more relevant. I'm gonna ask you to do something, not for me, but actually for one another. I wanna read a series of questions to you, and as I do, if you would say yes as an answer to any of these questions, would you please stand, okay? Uh, here we go. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever experienced grief? Have you experienced loss? Ever had battles with depression, battles with anxiety? Have you ever had a past traumatic event that you just couldn't shake? Have you ever been wounded? Have you ever failed and failed big? Have you ever been deeply disappointed by another person? Have you ever felt isolated? Have you ever been scared? Have you ever been overwhelmed with anger? Have you experienced times of confusion? Now look around and say to yourself, you too. See, you're not alone. You're not alone. Please sit down. So it's relevant. Now, uh, I want to begin by pointing out what a series like this can't do. A series like this, it can't fix you. It uh, can't fix your spouse. It can't fix your kids. It can't fix your parents. Uh, this is not a, a, a cure. A series like this can't make things in the past that were wrong right. It can't be a magic wand that takes away anxiety, depression, or trauma. Uh, this, uh, this is not a therapy session. You'll see that. Uh, this series, it can't be seen as a cure, and, uh, and, and it can't address everything. There, there will be things throughout this series that you want me to say, 
but I won't. There will be things that you want me to speak into, and I, and I can't. Uh, at the same time, there will be things that I say that you may not wish I did. Um, the reality is, 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 is when we enter into this, this is a potential minefield, and there's a potential for harm, and I would rather err on the side of caution than do more harm than good. I recognize that pastors in the past have been called upon to speak into matters that they weren't qualified for, trained for, gifted for, or wise in, and, the, and what the, the help they sought to bring was actually not helpful at all. I want to be helpful. I want to point you to, 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 to help through this. Um, so uh, you're, you're going to see that this series is, is, is limited in some ways. Um, here's what I hope, though. There's two things that I'm hoping for uh, throughout the series. The first is this, that it begins a discussion which makes conversations easier. Uh, my hope is that we can begin uh, to, to bring some of the stuff that we've kept in the darkness into the light, that we can make it safe for people to begin to talk about it. That, um, that the, the people that we've marginalized and pushed off to the side can come in and, and find community. That this would be a safe experience for people to say, there's a problem so that we can address the problem. The second thing I want to accomplish is that um, I know that, that, that I want you to, to communicate to you that there is a present help. There is a present help in anxiety, depression, and, and, and past trauma. Uh, Jesus came to give life and life abundantly but it's not just eternal life sometime in the future he came to bring that now and, and I want to make clear that this side of heaven this side of the return of the king um, most people don't have their anxiety or their depression or, or past trauma just magically removed this side of heaven most people don't experience just final complete cure that's not to say that there isn't help and there isn't hope and there isn't a presence of God that you can experience that will enable you to walk through these things so that they don't ruin, overcome you or have the final say in your life. There's a present help. Now, in order to accomplish that first hope of beginning a conversation that faces our situation, we need to recognize that we've made some assumptions that are wrong. We made some false assumptions about some of these things, uh, particularly the church has made some wrong assumptions. Uh, so I've compiled a little list here. Before I get into it, I want um, to recognize this list was, was compiled with some help, uh, first by uh, Danielle Dickey. Uh, she is, um, um, a, 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 I have it written down right here because I don't want to mess this up. She's a licensed and independent social worker with a master's in social work. Uh, she specializes in anxiety, trauma, PTSD, and eating disorders. Uh, this was also put together with help from Justin Bunn. He's a clinical psychologist who's treated veterans. Uh, at the, the Dayton VA from severe depression, anxiety, and PTSD um, before transitioning to the Air Force, Air Force. Now, both of them are part of our community. Um, they're, they're people you can talk to, all right? Um, uh, another uh, place uh, that, I, that I got some help from is uh, from a, a, a therapist named Judy Chai. She's a licensed and, and marriage and family therapist. She was hired by Tim Keller um, at a church called Redeemer Presbyterian in New York to be a part of his counseling staff. She wrote a book that just came out. Um, it's called uh, Who You Are, Internalizing the Gospel to Find Your True Identity, and, uh, and that's been very helpful. But uh, here's some assumptions that we, particularly in the church, have made regarding issues uh, and, 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 uh, and struggles with mental and, and emotional health. Assumption number one, 
The problem is personal sin. The problem is personal sin. That um, behind or underneath uh, your struggle with emotional or mental health is personal sin. And someone might point you to Romans 3.23, which says uh, that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, um, there's truth in that. And sin is the problem, right? But the notion that if you just repent of sin, that that will take away all of your struggles is not true. The notion that if you just repent of sin, everything will be fine. That doesn't, that's not the whole truth, right? Um, second assumption, the problem is spiritual weakness. That if you're, you're struggling in the issues of anxiety or depression or with past trauma, it's because you're not spiritually mature enough. And someone might point you to 1 Corinthians 3, which says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still in the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? If you're struggling these things, you need to grow up spiritually. Now, do we need to grow up spiritually? Yes. Spiritual maturity, there's a a road of sanctification. There's a process for us as we come into relationship with with, with Jesus that there's things that need to grow. And, and, and next year, we're going to be walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at more of those spiritual disciplines. Yes, their, their spiritual maturity is needed, but to level the accusation at someone that you're suffering in, in these ways because you're not spiritually mature, it's just, it's not the truth. And I know very spiritually mature people who struggle. Uh, third, problem is woundedness. We live in a fallen, broken world, and you can expect to be wounded and experience pain. We look at what Jesus said to his disciples and he did assure them that yes, there would be suffering, there would be trial, there would be tribulation in, in, in following him. But to simply chalk up everything and just say, this is just the way it is. Just pray and just read your Bible and hope for the best. Right? The, the, the notion that we could just pray anxiety away Right? Do, do you think if, the, if, if you could just pray anxiety away that Christians would have anxiety? And some people have erred so far as to say, well, if a Christian has anxiety, that means they're not a Christian. Not true. Fourth assumption. The problem is spiritual warfare. The idea being that behind the anxiety, there's a spiritual being at, at work to negatively affect fear in you. And we look at the life of Jesus and we see he confronted spiritual beings. He cast out demons all the time, right? Demons whose work manifested themselves in ways that you could interpret it as emotional or mental health issues. And people might point you to 1 Peter 5.8, which says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced to your brotherhood throughout the world. The problem is spiritual. Now, is there such a thing as spiritual warfare? Yes. Are there spiritual beings who will attack you on emotional or mental levels? Yes. But can you take every issue or every struggle or every, uh, every, every problem with, with these and lay them at Satan's feet? No. No. See, what we're doing is, with these assumptions is we're oversimplifying things. We're essentially saying to people, 
you know, you have nothing more than a skin rash that needs a little ointment. We're giving sort of topical solutions, superficial solutions to problems that are really, really much deeper than that. Much deeper than that. We, we do what James says in, in James 2.25 where he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? For people who are struggling and weighted down, for us to just say, take a God pill, right? Just pray more, read your Bible more, Confess your sin, put on the spiritual armor, you'll be fine. It's, it's really for us to deal with these things in a very dismissive way, and what we're essentially we're doing is we're, we're, we're pushing someone further into to isolation. We're, we're, we're pushing them away, and we're actually we're doing more harm than good. We're making the situation worse. We're making it unokay, not acceptable to, to actually talk about this stuff, and so go run and hide. We're dismissing it. And that is actually the opposite of the gospel because the gospel says that we enter in because our Savior entered in. Our Emmanuel became God with us. And for us to, to, to interact with one another means it requires us to, to go deep to in, a, in an incarnational way get involved with one another's real lives. We are not simple machines that when broken just need replacement parts. We are complex. And when you begin to think about what has formed your identity, what has shaped the identity that you have? All the years and all the the experience that have gone into making you, you. Yes, it begins in Genesis 3. Yes, it begins with disobedience and sin and death entering our reality. Yes, it begins there with with shame becoming the filter with which we see the world through. But you think about how that's been passed down from our first parents. You think about how that's affected your great-grandparents and what they passed on to your grandparents and what they passed on to your parents and what they passed on to you. Your family of origin speaks into your identity greatly. And your, your first few moments from the formation in the womb your first experiences with or without a loving caregiver, your formative years of understanding life, your framework for interpreting your own value and place in the world. Add to that the little and big events that shaped you, the affirmations and the rejections, the met needs and the unmet needs, not to mention the biological factors that compound it all. All the things that have gone in to the formation of your identity, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And we think a topical solution is it when a surgery is required and we need, uh, we need God to enter into all of those layers and all those brokenness, all the ways that, that we are in need. And so as Christians, we need to make it safe for that to happen. Uh, this message is, uh, is supposed to address anxiety and I've done a really long introduction to the whole series, so I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna switch to anxiety. That's what we're gonna focus on the rest of our time. Um, a good definition, let's start with that. Uh, anxiety is defined as, as distress or uneasiness of mind caused by fear of, any, of danger or fear of adversity. Um, all of us have experienced anxiety. All of us have, to some degree or another. And there are simpler or milder forms and more extreme forms, but all of us to some degree have experienced anxiety. 
Um, you could look at, at mild anxiety as, as something that it affects your, your emotions and affects your relationships. Maybe to, to some degree it affects your school or your work, but it's not a debilitating form. You're still able to function for the most part. Now you get into a mo- more moderate forms of anxiety where you're still able to function, but you notice there's, there's, there's increased levels of, of jitteriness, of feeling on edge, of, of being able to un- not control your worry. And then you, you get a little bit deeper and you see something called general anxiety disorder. And this is something that you find in the DSM-5 manual. And, and here's how, 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 how that is, is worked out. Um, the, this is a, a diagnostic tool. The anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following six symptoms with at least some symptoms present for more days than not for the past six months. So look at your past six months. If any of these, three or more, if you're an adult, only one if you're a child, any of these apply to you on a more regular basis, speak up. One, restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge. Two, being easily fatigued. Three, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank. Four, irritability. Five, muscle tension. Six, sleep disturbance. That's difficulty falling or staying asleep or restless, unsatisfying sleep. See, all of us experience anxiety, some to greater uh, levels and depths than others do. Now, uh, this is becoming more and more prevalent. And uh, a latest statistic from from, uh, Anxiety and Depression Association of America said anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults. That's over 19% of us. Over 19% of us age 18 or older, though highly treatable, only 36.9% of those suffering receive treatment. In other words, two-thirds of us who are experiencing anxiety and struggling with this to, to, to a certain level where it's, it's affecting and maybe even dominating our lives, two-thirds of us aren't getting any help. Why? Maybe it's partly because we haven't said it's okay to. Now, biblically, how do we approach this. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, The passage will be up on on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but uh, one chapter before this, 1 Kings 18, a guy named Elijah, who was a prophet, uh, he is confronted with the fact that all of Israel is turned away from God. Uh, They are worshiping uh, what they call the Baals. These are uh, are idols. These are uh, false gods. And uh, uh, they've torn down the the altars to God and built new altars, and they're sacrificing it. And most of the country has turned and worshiped this this idolatrous form of worship of Baal. And there's 450 prophets, and Elijah confronts all 450 of them, and he says, let's have a contest. And uh, the the place is Mount Carmel, and he says, okay, uh, you build an altar, and I'll build an altar. And you get a bull and I'll get a bull and we'll sacrifice our bulls and we'll put them on the altar and we'll call out to our gods and whatever God answers with fire, that's the God we'll serve and, uh, and, and, and that's the, the God we'll turn to. Let's have a little contest. So uh, the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal, they build their altar. Uh, they sacrifice their bull. They put the wood on it. They put the, the bull on top of it and then they begin to call out to their gods to rain down fire. And they do it all day. And they get desperate and they start to cut themselves and, and they're trying to appease their deities, but nothing happens. So Elijah says, my turn. He builds his altar 
and he sacrifices his bull, and he puts it on the wood, but then he does something different. Then he pours hundreds of gallons of water on top of this, soaking it, drenching it completely. Then he calls to God. And God answers, and fire comes down and incinerates everything. And Elijah wins. See, God is the God. God is the one true God. God's the one to serve. God's the one to follow. He, he wins the contest, and you think he'd be ecstatic, but he's not. He's actually scared because he's offended the king and his wife Jezebel, who now wants to hunt him down and kill him. 1 Kings 19, verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So he, he, he wins, but he's going on the run. To, to say that he's, he's experiencing anxiety. He's, when it comes to fight or, or, or flight, I mean, he's flighting. He's running. He's experiencing anxiety. And he goes into the desert, and he falls asleep under a broom tree. An angel wakes him up and physically provides for his needs. Food, water. Falls back to sleep. An angel taps him on the shoulder again. Eat, because this time, you're going a long ways away. This is the food that's going to sustain you for 40 days. So he eats and he goes. He goes. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Now, if you look at this, this scene through a therapeutic lens, there's something that Elijah's demonstrating. It's called uh, cognitive distortion. In other words, he's seeing his circumstances and himself through a, through a particular lens, shame, guilt, all that sort of stuff, but, but, but it's creating, it's, it's telling him a lie. It's, it's, it's distorted, it's twisted truth. Um, what, is he, what is he believing in this moment about himself? One, He's believing, I'm alone. Elijah thinks he's the only one in all of Israel that worships God. I'm alone. Two, 
I'm a failure. He says earlier in the first part, like, uh, I'm no better than my father's. I haven't, I haven't done it right. I've, I've failed. So I'm alone and I'm a failure. And what we see at work here is, is, is some of those, those cognitive distortions. One of them is called all or nothing thinking. It's where you see things black and white. It's all one way or, 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 or nothing is. Like, it's, it's all black and white. He, he's using overgeneralization. He's not the last person left alive who loves Jesus or loves God, excuse me, right? He's, a, he's overgeneralizing. He's jumping to conclusions. He thinks that this can only end badly. He thinks he's doomed. And, and he's catastrophizing. Like he's saying, this, I should die. Like, I'm done. You see the, the, the distorted view that he has, particularly of his circumstances and of himself. You ever feel that way? You ever say, you have those I am statements? I am alone. I am a loser. I am a failure. I'm gonna fail this course. I'm gonna fail to do this project at work. I'm, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wreck my kid's life and be a bad parent. I'm gonna be a horrible spouse. I am, like all, all of these, these sort of, these things that are coming out of us and these, these beliefs that we have, <clears throat> this perception that we have of who we are and what we are. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's all filtered through shame. Filter through shame. Well, you see, when it comes to our anxiety, whether it's mild or severe, the underlying cause is, it is the same. A wrong view of self, a wrong view of our circumstances, a wrong view of God. How does God respond to this situation? What does he do? First, he demonstrates his power. All right? Wind. A powerful wind that begins to break the rocks and the mountain all around Elijah, but God's not in the wind. And then an earthquake, and the, the earth beneath Elijah's feet is shaking, but God's not in the earthquake. A fire that apparently is consuming the mountain, but he's not in the fire. Like he's demonstrating in a powerful way who he is, right? And essentially through a demonstration of power, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm bigger than your circumstances, Elijah. Everything that's going on around you, you're seeing it through a particular lens. You think, you think this is the end. You think you should die. You think this is nothing but gloom and, 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 and catastrophe, but you don't understand how big I am and how powerful I am and how much in control of the situation I actually am. I'm bigger than your circumstances. But the second thing he does as he shows up, he was in the whisper. Elijah hears the whisper. He goes outside and he stands in the presence of God. Now, I don't know what the words were that he whispered, but I know what was communicated. And what was communicated to Elijah in that moment was God saying, I am here. I'm here. What difference does the presence of God in this situation make? Last week, we talked about objective truth versus subjective truth. With objective truth, you could say that I know for Christians, they have been 
chosen in the beloved. In other words, they've been accepted and loved because of the work of the Son. I know that is an objective truth. But to go from objective truth to, to subjective truth is to say, I am chosen in the beloved. Right? To go from knowledge to something you can actually stand on and build your life on becomes subjective truth. Right? For, for us to, to hear the words, I am here, for us to read in Scripture that Jesus is our Emmanuel, our God with us. From an objective standpoint, okay, cool. But from a subjective standpoint, <clears throat> if you're struggling with anxiety, this is huge. I am here. Last week we talked about the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. <clears throat> silence and solitude is, is not isolation and quiet. In silence, what we're saying is, is no to the other voices. In silence, we're tuning out the other voices. In, in silence, we're, we're, we're shutting off the devices and we're, we're turning away from the, the, those, those other words. Like in silence, we're seeking to listen to one person, God. In solitude, going to him, to be alone with him. It's not isolation. You're not on your own. You are with him. What would, what would your life look like if 10 minutes every day you got to spend sitting across the table from God? What would it look like every day if you could, you could wake up before everybody else wakes up, before the busyness of life begins, and you could go, go and you could sit on your, your couch and you, you could sit with God and you could say, here I am. Will you show me who I am? Will you show me who you are? I'm made in your image, and by showing me who you are, show me who I am. If you could spend 10 minutes with God every single day for him to remind you of the truth of who you are, for him to say the stuff that, that you're worrying about here, the, the, the I am statement saying you're, you're alone or, or that you're unloved or that you're going to fail or, or, or all of these other things that, that this is not true of you. I'm what's true of you. What if you had 10 minutes with God? Like what difference would that make in your life? Spiritual. Discipline and silence and solitude, is, it's powerful because it helps you take objective truth and make it subjective truth. We've, we need community with him. Um, Judy Cha put it this way in her book. Uh, we were created as dependent beings. You're not an independent being. You can't find your identity in here. We are dependent beings. We, we have to find our identity outside of ourselves but we were made in the image of God and that's where we find it. We cannot redeem what is broken in us or justify ourselves to earn an identity. We need a redeemer who will give us an identity. We're dependent in that way. What if that 10 minutes? So we start there, but we also need Christian community. God reveals his presence to us through Christian community through other people. Let me ask you, do you have a friend? Do you have somebody who you talk with about more than just your interests or hobbies or your favorite sports teams or you know, what books you're reading or all this sort of 
nice superficial stuff, but do you have a friend you can go to and say, I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. I need, I need some help. Like, do you have a friend that you can go to and you could take the mask off and be real with them? And, and if so, like, will they listen and, and point you in the right direction? Or will you have a friend who will point you to a, a different self-help book or to, to uh, anything and everything, right? Like, like in the story, going to anything and everything, trying to find an identity. Will they point you to anything and everything? Or will they point you to your identity found in God? Will they, will they remind you of what Christ has done for you? Will they remind you how God sees you? Will they remind you of, of how Jesus sees you and how he's accepted you and, and loved you because of what he's done for you? Will they bring you to the truth of the gospel? And, and will they do it in a way where they're not just saying, here's a God pill, right? Just pray and read this verse. I'll talk to you next week. Right? Will they do it in a way where they enter into your brokenness with you, they sit with you and spend time with you through hours and days and weeks and maybe months, maybe years? Do you have a friend who will go there with you? Maybe you need more than that, and that's okay. But there are people who are wise counselors, wise therapists who are, who are trained and gifted being able to sit down with you and listen to what's coming out with you and help you identify things that you need to see and work through and invite God into. Maybe that's what you need, and that's okay. But the reality is we experience the presence of God with him and, and, and through other people, and it's only the presence of God which will tell you who and what you are. Um, Isaiah 9.6 says this for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace Isaiah wrote that hundreds of years before Jesus was born this is an advent verse because it's, it's pointing toward this longing and waiting and expectation for the king to come and in, in our reality, that's already happened, right? You, you, can, you can look at, at this, basically, for, for us as Christians, there's, there's like three advents. The first is the advent of Christ, where the Son of God came and took on flesh, born to a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross to offer that life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, to take our place, to take our judgment and our penalty, the wrath of God that we deserve to take upon himself, he goes, and in doing that, the first advent means the end of the punishment of sin and shame for us. If you're here this morning and you think that what you're going through as far as your anxiety and trauma and, 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 and depression, you think that that's judgment from God? If you're laboring under the fact that you, you think that, that, that God is, is condemning you and that's why you're experiencing this stuff, you think that you're being punished by God? That's not the truth. Jesus has taken the punishment. He has made an end to the punishment of sin and shame. But there's a second advent because he rises. And before he died and before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, wait, because the Spirit's coming. The Comforter's going to come. 
And at just the right moment, the Spirit of God is poured out on the church. And all of a sudden, God is present in a way never present before in such permanence in the heart of the believer. That God can no longer be found in a temple, in a city across the other side of the world. Now God is found in the heart of the person who has embraced his son Jesus. The Spirit of God in you. Third person of the Trinity, God in you. I am here is a reality. And it's through, through the Spirit that we discovered there is an end to the powerlessness under sin and shame. There's an end to that. And now we wait. Our advent is the, the one in which we're waiting for the king to return. And when the king returns, he makes an end to the presence of sin and shame forever. We wait for the king to return. And, and you see, we have full confidence that he will return. Why? Because he showed up the first two times he said he would. We have full confidence in that and what he's done. If you're here this morning, like, you need to let those words sink deep into your heart. I am here. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't left you on your own. You're not alone. And you're not a failure because what I've accomplished for you is what matters for you. And I've accomplished everything that's necessary. I am here. The second thing, now, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with anxiety, you're, you're struggling in ways and it, it's, it's affecting your relationships and your emotions and it's affecting your work. It's, it's permeating your life and it, it's, time, it's time to not go it alone anymore. It's time to come out of isolation. It, it's time to say, I need help. And, and I want to provide that safe space for you to do that. You could talk to me. I have a, a list of other people you can talk to if you don't want to talk to me. But I want to create a safe space for you to, to bring what's in the dark into the light. Uh, I, I'm not going to promise you cure before Christ comes again. I'm not going to promise you cure before uh, he, he comes and takes away the presence of sin. But I can promise you this, you won't be alone. Won't be alone. I'm going to close with this. Jude 20 and 21 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I want to remind you, you are beloved. Right? You, you might be filtering things through, through shame and, and guilt and, 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 and through some, some cognitive distortions that are telling you that you're not loved, you are loved. You were beloved by him. Two, you have a faith. If you're in Christ Jesus, you don't have a religion. You don't have a set of moral standards merely. You don't have a bunch of practices. You have a faith. You have sure, concrete promises that have been delivered upon and more to come. You have a faith, and it's a faith that leads to life. You have a faith. You have more than intellectual assent that something is true, if you'll stand on it. Thirdly, you have a king that will return for you. You know that he'll return for you because he's kept his promises in the past. He's already demonstrated his power. 
And the Spirit can empower you to keep yourself in his love. The verse says to keep yourself in his love. You now have the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to do that, to keep yourself in his love. You see, the, the, the thing is, you can choose not to. You could choose to walk away from that love. See, I, I exhort you to keep yourself in this love by doing two things. Pray and read your Bible. Listen, I'm not telling you to take a God pill and walk away. Prayer is not a magical incantation. That's what we treat it like. If you just pray, this will go away. It's not a magical incantation. It's a relationship. You're talking to the one who loves you, who made you. Scripture reading is not an empty ritual to appease a a deity to make him do what you want. Scripture reading is listening to the one you have a relationship with. Speaking and listening, this is relationship. You can choose to not keep yourself in the love of God. You can choose to walk away from that, that, that relationship, but God invites you into it to sit alone in the silence and solitude with him and speak to him and let him speak to you through his word to let that permeate you and let that shape your identity and let that remind you of who you are and the the one simple fact, I am here. We're gonna close uh, these messages every week with uh, testimony. And this morning, I've invited Shelly Samuelson back. Uh, She's given her testimony in the past regarding anxiety, but she's going to to come again and and, uh, let us know where she's been since that time. And, uh, and then she will light the, the candle of Advent. Good morning. Uh, back in July, like he said, I gave a testimony talking about my struggle with anxiety. So when he asked for someone to share this last week, I was like, oh, I already did that. But... Um, I said, you know, just in case no one else volunteers, because it's not a super popular topic to announce to the whole church about, um, I can do it again. <laughs> so on Wednesday, he called me, and I was actually really excited. I've uh, been spending a lot of time with the Lord lately and just been learning a lot of sweet truths, so I'm excited to share that with you. Um, I'll do a quick recap um, of my testimony from before, just for anyone who wasn't here, and go on. So back in July... I shared a testimony of my struggle with anxiety over the past four years. I don't want to be repetitive for those of you that were here, but for those of you who are not, I'll give a quick recap, then share some of the things God has been teaching me since July. Four years ago, my husband and I were flying back from a restful anniversary trip to Washington State when I all of a sudden had a panic attack. At the time, I had no idea what was going on, and I was confused as I have flown my whole life growing up on an island and traveling to different countries. It was awful, a complete nightmare that I feared ever having to relive. Then two years later, we were up in Michigan camping with our three older kids, and I was pregnant with our fourth, and I had another panic attack out there in the night in the woods. It was after that that we made a pretty major life choice that was very hard and we had to grieve, but it brought peace and life. This past summer, I did not have a panic attack, but when traveling home to see family in Alaska, I was on the verge of one. It was after that trip that my husband and I started looking seriously at things in our life. Anxiety is not a sin, but rather, I believe, a symptom of underlining sin and issues in my life. A fever is not a disease, 
but rather it is a symptom that my body is trying to fight off something that should not be there. I believe in my life, anxiety is not the sickness, but rather the way that my body handles a much deeper issue and belief. Uh, recently, I took my son with me um, shopping, and we were getting a couple things, and he reminded me that he had outgrown his Christmas hat. Everyone in my family has a Christmas hat. And so he proceeded to find this Christmas hat that was taller than his six-year-old body. And he was very pleased. It's super cool, and I'm really excited for him to have it. But when we got home, he was trying to show everyone how impressively long it was by using it as a jump rope. And I announced to him, I said, um, I bought you a Christmas hat and not a jump rope. If you use it as a jump rope, you will no longer have a Christmas hat. And, and that was just a really good analogy for me that the Lord spoke to me. It says, Michelle, if you try to be someone that you're not, that I didn't create you to be, and fill shoes that I didn't create you to fill, you will break. And just keep that in mind as we keep going. Since July, I have sought out a counselor that my friend in house church recommended to me, and also going to a doctor to look at wide gamuts of things such as hormones, etc., to see how physical things could be playing into the struggle. Our minds, bodies, heart, and soul all affect each other. So far, I have discovered physically that my cortisol levels were, are way, were way too high. Cortisol is a stress hormone that is released in flight-or-flight moments, a very good gift from our creator. Essentially, though, you are meant to have this for a specific event and then go back to normal calmness. But with elevated cortisol, I was always on edge. So when in an airplane facing the stress of everyday life, I was easily pushed over the edge when there was nowhere to run to. I learned that my body actually stores extra cortisol in my muscles, and that is why when we are stressed, our back and neck muscles can get tense and achy. I started taking a supplement that helps my nervous system regulate my cortisol levels. I also have an inten been intentional in exercising more, putting aside other demands as a mom of four to go out for a walk or exercise. Nothing crazy but trying to be a more consistent and not feel guilty that I am not being selfish, but that, that this is good. That is a physical aspect. The reality is there are deeper issues in my high to my high cortisol levels. This is helpful, but the reality is God promises us freedom and abundant life, and I can tell you anxiety is far from an abundant life. It is a heavy un and unbearable at times, a burden to carry full of chaos, guilt, shame, and fear. I would like to share some of the things that God is teaching me in my time in his word and in counseling, addressing deeper issues and lies that I have believed. Over the years, some of my sweetest memories have been curled up on the couch while my family is sleeping. No interruptions, just me, my Bible, my journal, and God. As I was preparing for one of my counseling sessions recently, I started listing out some patterns I saw, and all of a sudden I realized as I processed out on my journal that I was trying to be the savior, the one convicting, and the judge in different times and areas of my life. I, re I realized ultimately I was trying to be God, and not just one part of the Trinity, but all three. I realized that I had believed the lie that I had subtly been taught that if I knew of a need or if someone was struggling, it was my responsibility to fix it. Growing up, I saw people around me blame people for their problems. It was the church's fault they had issues. Why was no one coming when they were struggling? 
I had grown to fear being that person that did not reach out and support and confront all that I saw. It was exhausting. I never felt at peace saying no to needs because what if I was the one who caused the person to walk away or wander? <clears throat> what I was failing to see growing up was the lack of personal responsibility they had to be in true, honest fellowship with others and the neglect of seeking God's truth and wise counsel for themselves and living in repentance. They were victims of their circumstances. And as I watched these different people in my life, I learned that I was both the savior for other people's circumstances and the victim of my own. Now, if you had asked me if that last sentence was true, I would have been shocked and said, no, Jesus is a savior and been perplexed and pondered if maybe I really was the victim. I have come to see again and again that I have often have an idea of how I think God will or how he should provide something I need, but then he provides it in a way I could never have dreamed. I don't need people in my life to be my all, to meet all my needs, because when I demand that, that they do, I miss out on the perfect and peaceful ways God is trying to care, teach, and lavish his grace on me. The truth is that God is my provider, and yes, he does provide through his children at times, but ultimately, it is to him I look and depend and anticipate his lavish kindness and mercy. But the paralyzing fear that I will be that person who looks at a brother in need and says, go and be well fed, is a deep-rooted fear. How do I know when I am simply admitting my human limitations and when I am being selfish? What about the verses that talk about laying down our lives for one another? I'm coming to realize over the past little bit of time, there's a difference between laying down my life for the whims, demands, fear, and jealousy of other person versus laying down my life for the blessing, growth, and encouragement of another individual. When I am doing the first, that is called idolatry, and idols will always demand and never be satisfied. But Jesus, when he came, he promised peace on earth, and he promised abundant life. He promised joy, and he promised freedom for the captives. The lies that I have been captive of, God is faithfully peeling back the layers to reveal how deep these lies are embedded in me. When God created me and rescued me and adopted me, he created me to be the child, dependent and delighted in him, fully trusting him to the care of all my needs. He created me to be a sibling, not the parent, to all the other siblings in Christ. Right now in my life, I have a fresh example of that, what that means with three older kids and a younger one. One of the greatest joys is watching the tender care and delight my older kids have with our toddler. It just makes my mommy heart fill with joy, but very easily my children can step over the line and start acting like the parent, with the toddler and with each other. I cannot tell you how often I have said to my kids, let me be the parent and you be the sibling. When anyone in the family tries to take over the role of someone else in the family, it breeds chaos. So it is in my life. When I try and take over God's role in my family's life or in other people's life, it breeds chaos. That chaos can breed in lots of ways, but one of those ways is anxiety. God has created me fearfully and wonderfully. He has made me exactly how he wanted to fit the plans and purposes he has for me. I don't know what all those plans are, but I can be sure it was not for me to be God. 
When I try and be God, it can look like resentment and bitterness, entitlement to being appreciated, knowing what is best for everyone, working myself into a frenzy to make sure everything is just right, not willing to say no and admit my limitations. And then there is the fear of man, where I make others my God, fearing their punishment or opinion of me if I were to disappoint or not meet their expectations. These are some areas of my life that lead to my battle with anxiety. But there are other things as well. There are the things totally outside my control, outside of me. <clears throat> as a child, I was hurt by another child. I was also bullied at times, and the adults did nothing. At times, it was the adults who bullied me. The year I turned 20, I was in a remote village in West Africa with a missionary lady. One night she was gone, and shortly after she left, someone tried to break into the house. <clears throat> the sheer terror of that moment is forever embedded in my mind. I don't know what would have happened to me if they had succeeded, but around that time, the local midwife's daughter was taken, and they never found her. Each of these events were traumatic, and they affect me even now as a woman and as a mother. There are times the fear of them rears its ugly head, and it's only in going to God's word and remembering who my good shepherd is and recounting all the times that he has walked with me through dark valleys that I can find peace. No matter what lies say and no matter how trauma makes me feel, I'm a child of God. I am dearly loved by him, and he is a good father. And my loving father, well, he also happens to be the great physician. And he delights in redeeming, restoring, and making new his children. Sometimes the surgery of my heart has been painful, but the freedom, hope, and peace that he gives is so worth the surrender and trust in him. Last night, God granted me another taste of what sweet victory and surrendering to him looks like. Ryan took me on a date to see a Christmas concert, and as we found seats, I saw someone, and it took me a moment to realize it was someone that had counseled a friend in my life that led to a lot of pain and grief in my family. There was a time, a season, where I was angry at this person, as I could not see how their counsel was biblical and that it caused a lot of pain and confusion in our home. Over time, God has helped me to surrender to him as the all-knowing and the just judge. Last night was the first time I have seen them since all this happened, and as I sat there with him nearby, I had, an old, I had old thoughts come up. But before they could percolate, I just prayed and said, God, you are the judge that knows the heart of man. I cannot see everything in a situation. You know, and I leave it in your hands to convict and judge. I don't know the whole story. Help me right now to not worry about what they are thinking or if they are judging me. I entrust myself and them to you. I had to do this a couple of times, but you know what? In the past, that kind of situation could have frozen me over in either bitterness or fear or in a mixture of both. But in acknowledging God is God, I found freedom to struggle, or to, sorry, I found freedom to snuggle up next to my husband and find pure joy in the beauty, creativity, and joy people were having with music. And I left there with a freedom and joy in knowing, with God, all things are possible. And the truth really does set us free. And in him, there is victory. With my Savior, there is hope.